Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made out of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Get ready. (laughs) Get ready for semester. Get ready for exams. Get ready for takeoff. Get ready for holidays. Get ready for bushfire season. Get ready to race. Uh, you might have been watching some of the Olympics in the last week, and uh, the athletes who are competing have been spending a lot of time getting ready. Life is filled with getting ready, right? Uni life is filled with getting ready. Uh, there's always something that is about to happen, something that you need to prepare for. Well, in this passage, Israel are being called to get ready, to get ready for something huge, something epic, something that they've been waiting for. And it starts with John appearing. Have you heard? A prophet has appeared. He's out baptizing people in the wilderness near the Jordan. Perhaps this is the one that we've been waiting for. You know, the one who's going to show up before God himself comes to destroy his enemies, to destroy our enemies. Oh, don't tell me you've never read Malachi. Have a listen to chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. What's more is it sounds like this prophet could be Elijah. Doesn't Malachi also talk about Elijah in chapter 4? See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And from the descriptions I've heard, it sounds just like Elijah. From 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. 
Can you imagine the buzz in Israel? They've had no prophets for 400 years, and now, out of the blue, a prophet appears. And it's not just any prophet. This is a prophet who looks and sounds just like the one predicted in Malachi over 400 years before. So can this be what Israel had been waiting for? Is God himself about to come and put things right? Will he come to destroy his enemies and cleanse Israel like, like he promised? To claim a people for himself and set up his kingdom here on earth? Matthew thinks so. He confirms that this prophet is the one that they've been waiting for. Have a look in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3 with me. This is he who it was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. God is coming and Israel need to get ready to prepare the way for God to come. But how do you get ready for the coming of God? Do you roll out a red carpet? Can you sacrifice some bulls like uh, Solomon did? I remember when the Queen came to Perth a few years back, uh, and the way that Perth got itself ready for the Queen to come uh, was we stopped all of our building projects, took down all of the cranes in the city, put up a lot of security cameras, uh, and actually put snipers on the roof of my work, which was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> but, you know, practical, but I imagine it probably wasn't that exciting for the Queen. But how do you get ready for God's coming? Surely that's even more important and rare an event than the Queen coming. How would you prepare for God's coming? Well, have a look at what John says in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John's call is repent, repent, turn around, turn back to God. Stop serving other gods. Stop ignoring God. Stop rebelling against his rule because very soon you'll have no option but to bow to him, but to acknowledge his rule. You see, if God is coming, then there are some serious implications because Israel haven't been living as they ought. And those same prophecies that predict the coming of God also warn Israel what God is going to do when he comes. Uh, So listen to Malachi chapter 3, just going a bit further than last time. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. You see, Israel have essentially staged a coup. uh, A coup against God. They've rejected God's rule and they're running things for themselves without him. So if you remember back to 1 Kings last week and our non-sermon Bible reading, that's the kind of thing that happened there with Solomon. Uh, Adonijah set himself up as king and David says, no, hang on a second, actually Solomon is king. He's the rightful king. And there was a coup that went on. Uh, And what's described in these few verses from Malachi is a bit like what's happening in Turkey at the moment too. So in Turkey, I don't know if you know what's going on there, they've had a coup. Uh, The army took control of the city and they declared that they were free of the president's rule uh, and they could do what they wanted. 
But the president was actually still in control. And the president swept back into the capital and started a purge of everyone who had opposed him in the coup. And that's kind of what's going on. That's kind of what's going on here in Israel. Um, And it reminds us of what happened in 1 Kings. Solomon, appointed king, went and destroyed all of those who had opposed him. Um, And just like in Turkey, just like in Israel back in Solomon's day, Israel have essentially staged a coup. But this time, it's against God. They've taken control of their lives. After all, God hasn't really done anything about it in the last 400 years. So it seems like maybe he doesn't care. If he cared, surely he'd do something, right? But God is doing something. He's coming back to reclaim his throne, to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it. And when he does, he will purge his people of everyone against him. And not just in Israel, God will destroy all of his enemies. No wonder John the Baptist is warning people to repent, right? The people of Israel need to get ready by changing teams. They need to turn away from their sin, their rebellion against God, and turn back to him. They need to repent to change their allegiances and recommit their lives to God and God alone submitting to his rule. John's message is clear. God is coming, so get ready by repenting. So let's just pause and see where we've been. Uh, So far, we've noticed two main things, right? Firstly is God's action. God is coming, and he's coming to establish his kingdom. And secondly is our response. The way for us to get ready for God's coming is to repent, to turn back to him, to turn around. And notice that this is exactly what John has been saying, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Turn back to him and repent. God is coming. And the rest of the chapter gives these two themes more depth and more colour. So what we're going to do is we're going to trace these two themes uh, and flesh them out a little bit. So... Firstly, we're going to look at what it looks like to repent. uh, And secondly, we're going to look at what God does when he comes. What he's coming to do. So say you were there, out in the desert, watching John baptize. Imagine the sorts of things that you might hear. Look, there he is. Wow, this John guy, he looks just like I imagined. Far out, there are a lot of people here. This had better be worth the trek. What's he saying? I can't quite hear. It sounds like he's telling us to repent. God is coming? Hang on, are they Pharisees? What are they here for? Surely they don't need to repent. Because everyone in Israel, they know that the Pharisees and Sadducees are the good guys, right? They're the ones that have it sorted. If God's going to be happy with any of the Israelites, it's going to be them. So maybe they were just there out of curiosity. But what does John say to them? Look in verse 7. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Whoa, way to make them look bad in front of the crowd, right? (laughs) No doubt they kind of felt a little bit put out. They probably thought they were all good with God. 
but John has a lot more to say to them on the topic of true repentance, and a lot more to say to us on the topic of true repentance. John tells us that true repentance isn't just some symbolic turning back to God. No, it needs to be genuine. Uh, and he gives us some markers to know when we have truly repented. So firstly, we see that for true repentance, lip service won't do. Lip service won't do. It's not enough to just go through the motions. Uh, if, that was, if it was just a matter of going through the motions and appearing to submit to God, then the Pharisees and Sadducees actually did have it sorted. They did a good job of going through the motions. But God can spot a fake apology from a mile away. And so can God's prophets. John calls them out on it straight away. Have you ever given a fake apology? I know I have. Um, Just imagine you're a young kid, you've done something wrong, you know you've done the wrong thing, and you know that you've got it coming for you. There's a punishment that's going to await, unless you can convince your parents that actually you're really, really, really sorry. (laughs) And, And you just, you can't get it out fast enough, right? Oh, I'm really sorry, I'm... I really, I didn't mean to. Um, I know that I've been there. In other words, it's kind of saying, please don't punish me. But you know that you're not really sorry. You just want to avoid the consequences of what you've done. You're not interested in turning around and changing. How often do we do the same thing to God? We say that we repent. We say that we want to submit to God's rule. But we keep on living our life as if it's ours to do whatever we want. We keep on ignoring God and living for ourselves. How often do we say the confession without even thinking about what we're saying? We're often not truly sorry. And God knows it. True repentance is not just lip service. Secondly, religious connections won't do. We can't cruise through on religious background or connections. John predicts the Pharisees' response. We have Abraham as our father, as if somehow that exempts them from having to repent. But actually, that's not going to cut it. And we, just the same as them, can't cruise through on our religious connections. We can't say, oh, it's okay, my parents are Christians, it'll be all good. Uh, Or even, I went to a Christian school, I take communion and I go to church most weeks, it'll be fine. True repentance actually involves our hearts We need to turn ourselves back to God to submit to his rule. It's not just the hearts of our parents. It's not just hanging out with the right people, going through the motions, doing the right things. No, actually, religious connection won't do. True repentance is necessary. So how do we spot true repentance? Well, finally, we see that true repentance produces fruit. In verse 8, John warns them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And obviously that's not meaning you have to go and sprout an apple from your arm or something weird. It's leading to a changed life, right? We know what producing fruit means. Um, We know from our earlier example of lip service. Actually, if we're truly sorry, we're not going to go do it again. We're going to change. We're going to be different. We're going to live differently. And similar with God, when we are truly repentant... It leads to a completely different life. It's like turning around, taking a new direction. So true repentance is easy to spot because true repentance will produce fruit. So true repentance is required, but why? Why is John calling for true repentance? 
Well, back to our other strand again, God is coming. God is coming. And we see some more detail in verses 11 and 12. Have a look. John explains. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God is coming, or more specifically, God's king is coming the one who was predicted to follow the messenger. And what does he come to do? He comes to baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, to gather up his wheat and to burn up the chaff. Okay, so what does that mean? It's two ways of explaining the same thing. Uh, When God's king comes, he's going to do two things, things that were prophesied about in the Old Testament. The first is that he's going to cleanse his people and gather them to himself. And the second is that he's going to judge. He's going to destroy everyone opposed to him. And the Old Testament makes it clear that both of those actions can be associated with fire. So uh, in our earlier passage in Malachi, God will purify his people like a refiner's fire. And we, and we know from other passages that God will destroy his enemies like a fire, like a destructive fire. So, in describing God, Psalm 97 verse 3 says, Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. So, we see that God will gather his people to himself, cleansing them and destroying his enemies. So, in summary, when God comes, he will both save and judge. He will gather and scatter. He will cleanse and he will destroy. That's why it's so important for true repentance to happen. Did you notice the difference between those who are destroyed and those who are saved? It's not that the ones being saved didn't need cleansing. They, you know, lived some kind of perfect life. Actually, God needed to cleanse them. The difference between both those groups is that some were waiting for God to come and trusting in him to cleanse them. And some of them were continuing on in their attitude of rebellion against God. That's the difference. That's why repentance is necessary, to turn from the rebellion and to submit to God. But when we turn, we have to trust in his mercy and his promise to cleanse his people and save them. So now we can expand on what we said earlier. Earlier we said we need to repent for God is coming. But now we can say we need to truly repent, for God is coming to judge and to save. Let's tackle this last section, and then we'll pull things together. You can actually kind of imagine being in the crowd who heard this. Wow, I'm glad that we came out here. This is a big deal. I wonder when God's king is coming. I wonder what it will be like when he comes. I imagine that there will be fire, and there will be flashes of lightning, and it will be fantastic and huge. See what happens now in verse 13, though. Jesus comes, the one who's predicted. God's king, who comes to judge and save, comes. Right on cue, he kind of steps onto the scene. God himself come down to earth. He comes from Galilee to the Jordan. And what does he do? 
Well, obviously, he's going to take over the baptism, right? He's going to start baptizing people with the Holy Spirit and fire, and it's going to be great. Hmm, actually, that's not quite right. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. What's going on there? John can't figure it out, so he double-checks with Jesus. Jesus, what are you doing? Are you sure about this? You see, John's baptism is meant to symbolize turning back to God, turning away from sin. But Jesus doesn't need to do that, right? If he's sinless, why does he need to repent? But Jesus gives a mysterious response. He tells John that it's proper to do to fulfill all righteousness. Great, so it's not really helping us. (laughs) We're not going to spend long here, as actually there are a bunch of theories about what it could mean. But I'll outline a couple of things that are helpful to make sense of what's going on with Jesus' baptism and how it connects to the passage before that point. So firstly, it's helpful to know that the phrase fitting to fulfill all righteousness is most likely Jesus signaling that his baptism represents personal dedication to God, um, to obeying God. So righteousness in this situation is now referring to the type of life that John's calling for in those who are being baptized and who are repenting, a life of wholehearted obedience to God. So Jesus is is stating then that his baptism is simply a part of a life obedient to God. It's an act that's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And in this way, Jesus' baptism represents the second half of repentance, turning toward God, committing himself to God, and committing his life to obey God's rule in everything. Just the first point, that's helpful. The second one is that Jesus' baptism points forward to the cross. You see, at Jesus' baptism, he's choosing to identify himself with men, choosing to identify himself with our sinfulness, even though he himself is not sinful. And he chooses to go through the water, which in the Old Testament is often a reminder of God's judgment. Think Noah or Jonah. And all of this looks forward to the cross, because the cross is where Jesus will ultimately identify with the sins of men even though he himself is sinless. And the cross is where the judgment and wrath of God will fall on Jesus instead of on us, where Jesus goes through the water of judgment so that we can pass through unscathed. So Jesus chooses to be baptised to demonstrate what he'll go through at the cross. So the reason we've looked at Jesus' baptism is because it ties together all of the themes we've been looking at, uh, and also because it's in the passage. Um, But the themes that we've been looking at, God's coming, salvation and judgment and repentance, can be seen in Jesus' baptism. We see God's coming in Jesus' baptism. We see that Jesus is God's king. God himself confirms it in his words. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, we see that God comes to save and judge. As Jesus indicates that he's going to go through the judgment that we deserve so that we can be saved. And finally, we see that the right response is to repent, to truly repent, to stop our puny rebellion against God's king, to change teams and side with God, and to trust in Jesus to cleanse us and to save us. So can I urge you to repent, turn around, submit to God, and trust in the cleansing that Jesus brings? 
Trust that he has taken the rebellion for our sin, the punishment for our sin on himself. So you may have been saying the words of the confession for many years, uh, but never submitting yourself to God's rule. Uh, you may have been cruising through, assuming that religious connection will, will be the thing that gets you through. You may have been saying sorry, but never living a changed life. Can I urge you to turn around? Stop rejecting God and his rule. Submit yourself to him. Don't put it off. God's kingdom is here. Now is the time to join his kingdom. And the day is coming soon when Jesus will return to judge. Well, perhaps that's not you. Uh, Perhaps you've been a Christian for ages. You have truly repented and submitted to God. And that is fantastic. But can I urge you to do two things, if that's you? Uh, Firstly, examine yourself. Because the Christian life is filled with recommitting ourselves to be obedient to God. As we become aware of areas in our lives where we fall short, where we don't live under God's good rule, we continually have to repent, turn back, submit to God. And secondly, keep on trusting Jesus. If you've submitted your life to him, if you recognize that you need to be obedient to God's king, then keep on looking to Jesus to cleanse you. We will fall short. But Jesus chose to take the judgment that we deserve for all of the people who trust him. So we all need to get ready by truly repenting and trusting Jesus, God's king who has come to judge and to save.